This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. Thousands of financial advisors, asset managers, and investors rely on YCharts to develop insights, make smarter investment decisions, and effectively communicate with prospects and clients. With industry-leading tools, you're empowered to create compelling visuals that emphasize the strengths of your investment strategies. For more information, start a free trial at YCharts.com or follow on Twitter at YCharts. Now, we hope you enjoy this episode of the 7 Investing Podcast. Hi, and welcome to another episode of No Limit with Christoph and Luke, a Seven Investing production. Today is Monday, the 21st of November, and as ever, I'm delighted to be joined by my Seven Investing lead advisor and good buddy, Christoph Pakarski. How are you doing? Hey, happy Monday to you, Luke. You guys still have a, a prime minister? We do. It's a political stability here. Everything is fantastic. Although, actually, there's some instability in my little home office recording studio. I can see the walls peeling away as I speak. I noticed a recent podcast I recorded with uh, Simon and Anoban. I was super echoey. So you know what I've done is I've bought, but I cheaped out. I bought from Amazon these cheap, like, funky... I'm going to pull one off the wall because it's literally falling off. Hang on. I bought a ton of these. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, wow, that's <laughs> serious. Uh-huh. I've lined my wall with these, and I came into the office this morning, and, like, half of them are on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, for anyone who's only on the audio, they're like these funky yeah. triangular kind of foam acoustic panels, but I shouldn't have gone so cheap. <laughs> That's how you know we're serious. <laughs> Hopefully I'm not <laughs> echoing now anyway. Yeah, man. So uh, since we last talked, the those of us in the US have had an election and it turned out quite differently than, than predicted. So that's always... A fascinating thing and uh, rumor has it a majority of that is because uh, people were distancing themselves from Trump while just the other day Twitter welcomed him back yeah a a new horse has re-entered the race what's your let's I know we're gonna talk about Twitter a lot on today's episode but what's your view on Trump re-entering the political arena in the States I think he's uh, problematic to say the least probably for the republicans more so than the democrats right he's uh right he's completely split yeah. their vote yeah yeah the elections told us that people no longer want that level of narcissism and so his candidates the ones he backed were rejected so it seems like we have some semblance of of uh i don't want to overstate the case but stability uh, and Trump clearly represents uh, a move back toward chaos, and and we seem to be done with that. So if the Republican Party chooses him, like you said, it's probably going to be chaos for them and pretty much ensure uh, more Democratic candidates. Interestingly, too, this morning I read the former Attorney General Barr outwardly uh condemn Trump essentially as as uh, highly problematic and not good for the country. Are they still pursuing some sort of conviction against him? Oh yeah, he has all kinds of cases in court. Uh, I mean, yeah. uh, but I imagine that's going to be years or m- months and years before that plays out. But it's it's interesting. He still has a base, but the people who now see their political fortunes in danger are clearly distancing themselves from him. Yeah, but I, I, I kind of see this as a bit of a victory for common sense in terms of how 
the, maybe the voters have reacted to him kind of coming back into the fray. So probably it's positive for the future. But the Democrats have got to field a better candidate than Biden come 2024. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, in full disclosure, I, I, I really detest him as a, as a, as a person, as a character, say. Right. Uh, but you know, I try to I try to see things from all the sides, and the people in his corner, you know, said he was the kind of force that that questions everything, including all of the rot and including all of the assumptions that needed to be questioned. So from that angle, he served, I think, a really important role. But at some point, from my perspective, again, you have to draw a line. And when your own government, it, you, when you're inciting riots that lead to death with no accountability, I mean, it's, you know, an agent of chaos that is so virulent is not, I mean, it's just not how how civilization works anymore, yeah. hopefully. Well, it's, uh, it's that civilization. Let's turn to uh, social media side of things. How's that functioning? <laughs> So Trump's back on Twitter, I saw. Bit of a disingenuous poll by Elon Musk, right, to say, oh, you know, should we bring Trump back? I saw someone that described some kind of crazy rationale to that, like, you know, more maybe retrofitted Elon four-dimensional chess, that that Twitter poll was maybe a bot trap to try to identify all of the fake accounts. You know, that's interesting. I actually t took that to, to be the higher truth. M maybe. My assumption was that he knew he was bringing back Trump. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that that was it. I mean, how many it was? How many millions of votes did that get? Uh, or views? I think fourteen something million votes, right? Yeah. yeah. But hundred something million views. Right. And I'm guessing the engineers must have caught a massive amount of bots. So I believe they. I don't. I don't I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I believe that's why they did it, but perhaps subsequently they've realized there might be some in interesting insights there. I mean, I think mm -hmm. a bit like kind of a lot of his actions, he's kind of justifying the thing he knows he's going to do anyway, uh, with, you know, ascribing it to the, you know, kind of the will of the people. Yeah. So Luke, tell me right now, it seems like my, well, my Twitter, my own Twitter feed seems highly polarized. You've got the Elon is a nut job and the other side this is what excellence in execution looks like what's right. your take uh I, I guess i'm seeing the same sort of stuff i'm uh like yeah, i'm almost to the point where i want to kind of mute elon or anything referencing elon because it's getting a bit dominant i'd like to just think about some other stuff but maybe an interesting angle on that question is like how he's managed the company twitter since taking it over and there's definitely like two polar sides to kind of how that's playing out you know one one aspect is he's taken an axe to the, the organization in a very smart way and he's going to you know, keep the people he needs to run a tighter ship and much more operationally effective. The other side is he's just willfully ignorant of employment laws, perhaps outside of the US, and he's fired all of the teams that keep the company operating. Did you see a hilarious tweet today, actually, about some guy? So uh, Twitter has something called being super followed. Did you see this one? Mm-mm. This is ridiculous. So I believe it. Some guy, so apparently you can, I've never seen this, but apparently you can super follow someone, which means you kind of pay to be a follower and you, you know, you subscribe. I don't know how it works, but I guess the, the, the main account sets like a, a price and then to be a super follower, you know, I might pay like two bucks a month to be a, a seven flying patapus, 
which is you, Christoph, a seven flying Panabus follower. Um, so, uh, so this guy tweeted, Hey, Twitter, the company seems to be a super follower of mine. And I think they've probably fired all of the people who look after like invoicing and account management. So he jacked his own super follow rate up to $10,000 and apparently he got paid. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's fascinating. Right. That's awesome. a good business yeah. model. Can we yeah. invest in that? Like what's the stock ticker for that? Luke? <laughs> what, is that? what is the IPO? Yeah. yeah. You know, Anurban, uh, one of our co-lead advisors is quite bullish on Tesla as, as am I. And I think in our own conversations, I, uh, he said something that I really agreed with. Forget the call it character eccentricities. Yeah. This is a man who is running a, a rocket ship company that is perhaps exceeding the capacities of NASA, or at least like they're on a peer peer to peer level. Right? So actual rocket science and he completely revolutionized the automotive industry one of the hardest things to do possibly i mean right a a any industry with operational margins that are truly out of this world so the thought that this guy can't handle a a website platform while also you know he himself having coding experience and coding understanding and at his disposal some of the world's best engineers this kind of like my my take of uh, my take was that the overreaction to how bad he's doing and that it's all going to crumble felt to me like yelling fire in the theater and and i was incredibly bullish after that like in the sense of like wow twitter's going to be, be like <laughs> i don't know if it's my own elon kool-aid or i mean it just the pieces don't the 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 pieces do not add up for him failing at this okay i i kind of agree longer term but he's going to do as he self-admitted he's going to do a bunch of dumb stuff along the journey because he's just going to try stuff and what doesn't stick they're going to abandon but they've like they've clearly mismanaged some key elements of this like the rollout of twitter blue which was the kind of you know pay eight dollars to get a subscription tick they rolled it out on iphone and then they had to pull it like a week later when various big advertisers were being impersonated to the detriment of the advertiser's brand mm -hmm. like who knows what goes on inside the mind of this man i wouldn't even pretend to understand or guess but um if i think if he approaches this as a pure technology or business problem there's like there's another whole angle around who where they get their revenue today which is you know 90 percent of their revenue i think comes from advertisers um and elon recognizes they have to break that dependence but if he totally disenfranchises the advertisers on the journey of getting to the point that they have like sustainable subscription revenue, well, it's going to cost him a lot of money. Am I right to say the burn rate is like a billion dollars a year, mm -hmm. something like that? Mm -hmm. He's got the pocket, so, you know, he can afford it. He could turn it into something really interesting, but he could also break it along the way, perhaps. And that doesn't mean breaking the technology, uh, but he could just break the community. Like, people would just leave because it becomes like an unholy place to hang out. Do we know how many people are on Twitter? Can't, I seem to remember a monthly active user number, which is in like the, a couple of hundred million, but that's yeah. like way lower than Facebook's and some of the other networks. Right. I was, I was assuming it was like something like 500 million people and you're kind of iterating and he's trying to iterate in public, which right. break things, fix them quickly, break them quickly, fix them quickly. 
it just seems like given that there is well i guess massive it's all relative but but when you have a massive number of people not the whole world but still a, a huge number of people and all of a sudden you you lose what 7500 employees right was that the yep, was yep, that the number yep, right yeah that sounds that sounds right yep and it turns out you only need 50 or 100 right. of them so that bloat right and this is i think right the main point here what i mean i, I it's a genuine question for me what were those 7400 people doing on a daily basis i mean that's the that's the knock right like i i know lots of things need to get done but to go from 7400 to it's still being functional enough functional functional enough at 100 that's a massive massive difference Pro, I mean, there's an assumption there that it remains functional, right? So you wouldn't right. feel the impact of losing, I don't know, the guys who pay do the payroll or half your finance department, mm -hmm. right? There's some core operational roles that are nothing to do with Twitter, the technology. I don't know the extent to which he's kind of culled folk in those departments, but you wouldn't feel the impact of that until you had to do your next kind of quarterly report mm -hmm. or you, know, you had to actually make payroll or something. Um, yeah. So... Yeah, I think we just see. So I think he's going to suffer some issues in the short to medium term. I don't doubt the guy's ability to hold the thing together until they sort it all out. So it remains to be seen, right? But the message, the clear message here that's worth thinking about is if he's successful, yeah, then to go from seven thousand five hundred to say a hundred tells yeah. the rest of the big tech world, including all the stock-based compensation stuff like this was a joke to some extent what we were doing before was a joke shareholders were being mass sacrificed at the altar and for what for no good reason so it, it seems seismic right it seems like this is a kind of seismic moment in both in where we are with macro where we are with growth rates and the what elon is trying to pull off like it will be a revolutionary kind of shift right i agree maybe bringing it back to that comment i just made about all these kind of operational teams like I saw a Twitter thread um, maybe a week ago that talked about a potential implosion in SaaS, you know, maybe the SaaS bubble popping. Yep. Because these companies are on such a high burn rate. They have so many different services they're paying tens of thousand dollars a month for subscribing to, to kind of run bits of their organization. Well, actually, though, if they can take the Twitter lesson, if they can, like, slash and burn their, their permanent workforce, get their costs way, way down, that's fantastic for shareholders. It's fantastic for stock-based comp. And you can still buy in a lot of these operational capabilities. So, you know, maybe it's things like this that, uh, you know, continue the, the SaaS kind of business model for the next decade. Mm -hmm. Man, what, what a time to be alive. <laughs> Do you have a more like a personal, emotional, human stake here? Or is it pure business business analysis kind of thinking? on twitter specifically yeah uh yeah I, I i am rooting for the platform to succeed and must succeed and for him to turn it into like a stronger better platform with less mm -hmm. bots and crap because it's that it's the only social network i take seriously like proper mm -hmm. quality conversation happens there i've i think i said to you the other week i installed tiktok so you know i've still been yeah. swiping on tiktok right <laughs> it means some downtime <laughs> here and there every every other advert on TikTok right now is a crypto scam. I've dug into it, but they're trying to say, oh, you know, you can arbitrage your Bitcoin by buying it here and selling it here. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. bullshit, guys. Um, you know, there's a lot of. Hang on, my cat's going crazy. I'll say hello, sushi. I fed, yeah. him, I fed him before the podcast. I fed him before the podcast, <laughs> and he still wants more. Get out of here. Um, oh man, where the, yeah, where the, like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, if you hear him squeaking, he's like shouting at me down there. Um, he, uh, coming back to Twitter, right? So it like st- that stuff happens on Twitter as well. Um, if Elon can fix that, it's going to be a better network. Um, and I get a lot of personal utility out of my use of Twitter. It's like the only place I go to get news, pretty much. Yeah, I was wondering about that. You know, the educated amount that I've learned via that platform, it seems to me it's the only place you have legitimately serious people offering legitimately legitimate value to others. Right. Uh, I have a deep bias against meta uh, for all kinds of reasons not worth talking about right now, so I completely left that place. Uh, Instagram, I basically took Cal Newport's you know, warnings about social, the harms of social media seriously, and so I got off of basically all social media, and then education is via Twitter. Take that away, and I think it, it would feel like a big gap, a big gap in my resources. Yeah. So I really hope he succeeds. Did you, uh, out of interest, did you check out Mastodon, which is being touted as a potential Twitter replacement? No, I have not. I, I did. It's, kind of, it's, it's clunky. It's slow. It's clunky. It took me too long to sign up. I kind of gave up in the end. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know where people go. I see a bunch of uh, influencers I respect moving to Instagram. If Instagram can be turned into like a place where more serious discussion happens, that's great, I suppose. But yeah, I'm still hoping Twitter is the, uh, the place to hang, the town square. I want to over-exaggerate a point because maybe it'll provide some folks listen to this some context. I really, as someone who is fascinated by the likes of Leonardo da Vinci and someone like Einstein, I think it's extraordinarily rare when you have a clear... Um, Genius is an overused term, but someone operating on using metrics and a way of thinking that is so far above and not above, that's also hierarchical, but so other than where most people operate. And for him to have all the resources that he needs and to be willing to do everything in public and a kind of like um, prankster to boot makes, makes the whole show one of the, I mean, it's like the most entertaining thing. <laughs> Thing. We got like there's no there's no television series I'd rather watch than how this is unfolding live in you know in real time like on your computer screen. It's so fascinating. So, if, uh, if you're not if you're not on Twitter and you're kind of worrying wondering what all the drama is about, like go check it out. And while you're there, maybe go follow Christoph and myself. That's right. That's the first step. <laughs> God, we're two old fuddy duddies compared to all, all of the things that anyway. So, uh, Luke, you were you had a you had a mission. You you're on a mission. You took <laughs> you took my my. Uh, what's the polite way to phrase this? <laughs> my encouraging words to to have a look at a portfolio category labeled as worry stocks. Yeah, I did. I've done pretty well actually. Hopefully, you'll be pleased uh-huh. with my uh, my progress. So, when we last met, uh, you told me off quite correctly having this fairly chunky worry stock category in my own personal investment portfolio. I haven't got the numbers at hand. I think it was so, I had something like 10 stocks categorized as worries and it was like 5.1% of the portfolio. So I've been through like 
maybe half of those. So I think I'm now down to six worry stocks, uh, which represent two and a bit, two and a half percent of the portfolio. That's pretty good. I've kind of, mm-hmm. kind of halved the challenge. And I did that by basically selling three things that I've kind of given up the ghost on. So I sold Fiverr, the uh, two-sided marketplace. I sold a little company called Curiosity Stream, and uh, and I sold Anapsis Bio. I sold that last one just because, damn, like I have, I can't even remember what these guys do now. I'm so not close to the business model. Mm-hmm. If I don't understand it, I just do not have the bandwidth to get back into it. Mm-hmm. And then I had a fairly chunky one block. At, you know, was known as Square. That was on my worry list. I've kind of upgraded that back to my mm-hmm. growth list. I think I've kind of reinstilled my uh, my belief in their model. So. One thing that maybe some investors who might be in the beginning stages or even in the middle stages, or never mind, maybe for everyone, what was the feeling you had after you sold them? Like once the sell, once you pushed the button and then they were out of your portfolio, what what did you experience? Uh, yeah, okay. I suppose a bit of relief that uh, like I've got a better handle on what I own for one. It's been on my to-do list for some time, like go understand these companies and fix them. So I, you know, that little uh, jolt of, uh, what's it, serotonin, whatever the the, uh, the brain hormone is, that when you've done something that, uh, that rewards mm-hmm. you. Like I've now got something off my to-do list and I like, I'm a guy who lives his life by lists. Yeah, I find it's, uh, it's that kind of task is maybe one of the most difficult things to do to execute, but when executed, it's that one decision that takes care of a hundred more. And somehow I feel more clean anytime I, I complete the process. One, identify something that concerns me. Two, take a deliberate stance toward, okay, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to, I'm keeping this or I'm, I'm going to, I, I want to actually, it's more about why going back to why do I have this company checking out the biases, all the anchoring fallacies, all of the stuff, right. And then making a decision. Okay. I'm no longer either. I'm no longer worried about it because of this and this reason I understand the thesis and I'm going, it's, it's clear or it's out. And that feeling of relief, it's maybe one of the, it feels well-earned in these situations. I know you've uh, you've you've had a significant removal from your own portfolio lately. So I guess you're speaking from the heart there a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and it's so hard. It's so just just not to sugarcoat coat this, especially when you're looking at heavy losses. And often with these companies, it's like it's not like all the potential is all of a sudden out the window. Like the for for most of them, the potential is still great. And now you're thinking to yourself, and it's eighty percent cheaper. So to, to make that executive call is incredibly hard. And I think maybe a saving grace for me, maybe the thing I overlook most of the time is the thought I could always buy it back once it merits inclusion in my portfolio. I, I get that. I've come at a slightly different way because I'm I've there's a term I kind of picked up being a change guy in a bank for a long time. And sometimes like you don't have enough information to make a decision, but you have to make a decision and you have to kind of move forwards. So the term I would use when I'm running like a steering committee or something and trying to get a decision was like, we're going to take this as a no regrets decision. We understand the fact that we don't have all of, we have imperfect information mm-hmm. to make the best decision we can today. 
and we're not going to regret that, you know, no matter what, because we took we took the best decision we could take. So I've kind of applying that framework to those smaller decisions around my own portfolio. Like I'm a bit very unlike yourself. Like I haven't held on to like one share. I'm probably, you know, I've exited these companies. I'm not going to follow them anymore. I've got, you know, better, bigger fish to fry. Um, and if they go on to be hundred baggers from here, well, you know, great for the team and the founders. I kind of took my no regrets decision. So I guess I'm going to have to try and not regret that. Oh, that's a great counterpoint. I think to what I was saying. Yeah. Often I'll leave the one share just to keep it, uh, because there's a difference for me when the stock is on the watch list versus it's still literally my portfolio, even though I don't count the one share holdings as holdings. I don't yep. know if that's like a sleight of hand kind of thing, but it helps me, you know, either see just, it keeps me be, I think usually it's because I understand those companies. Well, they stay more visible to me when I have the one share and it's maybe not so much about regret, even though that framework you, you talk about is really strong, but it maybe makes it easier for me to follow the story and then go back in if the evidence warrants it. Yeah, but I, I see that, and it's and the, and the way your approach is powerful. But the downside is, like, it's always just consuming a little bit of your emotional mm -hmm. bandwidth. And if you do mm -hmm. see, you know, oh, I missed out on this huge gain, right? That's very clear in your mind, like it's there on your scorecard. Yeah, yeah, good point, Luke. Uh, hopefully, yeah, for for people listening to this, this would be an interesting place for anyone to offer some commentary. Should you be, I guess, watching this on YouTube? because it, it feels to me like we're offering two useful strategies that are different from one another. And maybe it's the case there, like uh, one of those know yourself kind of things where, right? Where for Luke, the no regret strategy just makes the bandaid ripping, ripping it off that much more leaves him at ease. And, and for me, it kind of, there's a strategic element that I, I play with. That's the hardest thing about managing a portfolio, right? It's actually not managing the portfolio, it's managing yourself. And I think your comment there, you know, know thyself, as the uh, as the Oracle said to Neo, right? That's, that's the most important thing. If you can manage your portfolio in a way that plays to the things that either you're strong at or you're comfortable with, you have a much more higher chance of success. Right, and then sticking to that strategy, especially when things get tough, that kind of thing is what experience gives you over the years. And it's always humbling when you realize <laughs> so many years in, right? And I've made this fairly rookie mistake again, <laughs> yeah. right? But then acknowledge it and, yeah. and make the needed move and onwards, right? You know, that's, a, that's an interesting segue to another conversation I know we wanted to have today. Um, uh, and it was a, about a comment you picked up on a recent episode of the All In podcast. Do you want to you pick us up on that? Yeah. Uh, forgive me if I don't re remember who said it exactly and the, the, the full context. But I thought I heard one of the gents over there say there needs to be a test in order to participate in the markets. And I think they were specifically talking about crypto. Uh, in the context of crypto, right? That we have all these scams taking place. And that's in part because people to a large extent do not know what they're doing on a, on a very basic level. So I think that comment was meant to be provocative, but they were, whoever said it was quite passionate. They're saying it's, it's basically idiotic for us to allow people to engage in complex, risky markets, say, 
without any way of knowing their qualifications to step into this arena. So just like we have a test for driving, why do we not have a test for market participation? And I thought about that and I, and it kind of just, it resonated so much to me with seven investing's mission. First of all, if we provide an immense amount of research for you, but the idea in a larger sense is we're empowering you, right? To know what you're doing, right? Which you, you, it's kind of like a university of sorts. Uh, there's no official test, but is that really a bad idea? Like, would not our culture in general be better served if there was, in fact, some sort of certificate you needed in order to buy securities? So I think there's two aspects to this. And I, I think the conversation the guys had on the all-in pod was like your point, but there's an additional point as well. So it was, it was certainly about crypto and the view that, you know, to engage in some of these risky things that we can do today you should probably have a bit of education enablement and maybe certification to protect you. But at the same time, I think in the US, there are certain uh, investments that a regular retail investor cannot get access to. Venture capital stakes, crowds funding, things like that. And at the same time, you know, introducing some education and a test to allow people to do something they can't do today could also be valuable. Um, mm -hmm. But if we stick with your first point about should we introduce a qualification to allow you to be an investor. So I think that's kind of the point you were taking at. So um, I kind of get it, but at the same time, I'm a bit resistant to that because already not enough people are investors. And if we, let's put aside, uh, you know, growth investing and managing an active portfolio. If we just say you've got 10% of your salary going into some sort of pension or your savings account for the future, and it's investing in, um, like passive index trackers, it's investing in the S&P or the FTSE or whatever it might be. Should we establish more barriers to that? Like we want everybody to do that, surely, take charge of their uh, financial future. Yeah, that's a that's a good point, Luke. I, I wonder if the analogy of driving is, is useful. You know, on the one hand, it allows us immense freedom. We also acknowledge that kills, let's say 40,000 people a year. Right. So everyone knows that there are inherent dangers to this thing. And yet we obviously support or at least in the United States, forgive me for for being U.S. centric. But I guess in the in the modern Western world, right, driving is kind of a, a, a linchpin to how we do things. Uh, the fact that not it's so central to people's lives, but we also need to make sure you you pr at least can pretend to drive the car and park it and can read the basic signs. It doesn't get rid of the dangers, but it does, I don't know, what does it do? I mean, is this maybe a, a point in your case? Like it standardizes what we think everyone knows on a road and it, and I'm assuming some classes actually teach you something worthwhile. So maybe, okay. maybe in the, yeah, I'm stuck here's, here's here a, in here's my a, here's a way, here's a way into it. Cause I, I think it's something that all societies should do, which they don't today, which is like some basic level of it, oh, investing awareness, understanding compound interest, things like that. But as a, at a kind of school level, I don't, you know, when you say, well, actually from even kind of preschool, you could start to do that with like Legos and building blocks and stuff and bartering. But, uh, you know, right through the curriculum, I think there should be like an applied track to maths, mm -hmm. which just talks about personal finance and, you know, the dangers of credit cards and buy now, pay later. That's the kind of stuff that's going to protect people. Um, 
at the same time, you know, I think everyone should, you know, learn the basics of first aid. Like there are sort of basic things that don't take much and that could be incredibly beneficial for the individual and for society. But should you have to get some sort of license to be an investor? Like I think mm -hmm. we should be making it as easy as possible, not more difficult. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with you. That that's a that's a good point. It's kind of like we're trying to do two separate things and um it's like maybe it's like, yeah, like having encouraging people to to complete something like maybe in the future seven investing offers an investing certificate. And it's very obvious that if you take a month of, months worth of classes with the seven investing advisors, you're gonna be leagues ahead of where most people are and you're probably gonna save yourself from doing something incredibly stupid on a voluntary basis absolutely like having wider availability of that sort of stuff um and the stuff we do at seven investing actually is relatively complex we're sort of tailoring our subscription product to a more sophisticated investor who really wants to manage their own investments um but even having like the basics making that stuff more widely available you know, some government funding. So at least, like I, I recently enabled the ability to trade options in one of my accounts. I had like a ton of risk approvals I had to tick off. And eventually, you know, even I'm bored of reading like the details and all the terms and conditions. So I'm just clicking like accept, 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 accept. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We need something a bit more engaging than that. Um, but yeah, making that stuff more widely available to a regular investor can only be a good thing. Right. And I guess even then it only goes so far if we want to talk about the FTX meltdown, right? Talk about insanity. But one of the wildest things from my perspective is how many supposedly professional investing houses did not do what I guess in hindsight looks like basic diligence. Yeah. I mean, I really don't know the details, Luke, but, but Chamath actually on the All In podcast, he said it clearly, right? Like, he said, we did our research and we need you to follow up with X, Y, and Z. And the response was, uh, go F yourself. Probably there's like a, a million better informed sources that you and I to get into the details of what went wrong with FTX. But clearly a bunch of folk failed their due diligence. But the people I feel sorry for are mom and pop investors who maybe had their currency, had their cryptocurrency on this centralized exchange, assuming it was safe. But this is like the Wild West still, right? It's unregulated. There's, there's no insurance to protect yeah. um, your funds on those platforms. It's not segregated money. You've got no way of evidencing that they have the reserves that they say they have so they can pay you out. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of run on the bank. Unfortunately, it ties into that uh, conversation we were just having about, you know, having a better understanding of what it is you're doing. If you're in the world of cryptocurrency, like many of the protections you have compared to your regular bank account they, they just do not exist and it'll be a long time before that that market matures to the point that they do yeah and in another note of of uh genuine condolence to anyone that really lost anything really what a terrible outcome the only silver lining i could think of is you know like a good forest fire uh, the ground becomes more fertile for the authentic players we have to go through the scam phase right like it's just how i guess it always works right you, you, you that's the only way humans learn to weed out the greed and corruption and grift and my my genuine hope and suspicion is that the crypto industry because the technology is so fundamentally powerful will become better, stronger, 
uh, and more civically minded in the future. And that's a good thing. It's just a great sorrow that came at such a high cost. We probably haven't seen the full cost just yet, right? There seems to be a lot of collateral damage from FTX's meltdown. So we could, well, we're likely to see a number of other big institutions go down at the same time. You know, really, I, I, I took the view, I've got a tiny bit of cryptocurrency, not, not a huge amount at all, like less than 1% of my portfolio. But I took the view, if I'm going to have uh, this sort of investment, I don't want to put it on a centralized exchange. I'm going to do self-custody. So I've got like a hardware wallet and I've taken certain uh, steps to preserve my passphrase, my key, uh, and I'm confident it's all secure. It's not worth trying to hack me and go after me. There's not enough there, guys. Don't bother. Um, but I'm pretty confident in my protocols. Um, but it is complex to do that stuff, right? And, you know, if you don't want to write down your uh, passphrase somewhere, you know, some people like have it stamped into a block of aluminium and bury it in the garden or something. I haven't done that. Don't come and dig up my garden. Um, uh, if, you, if you haven't protected your key, then if you lose your key, you've lost your coins. So... You know, there are downsides to that as well. You have to trust yourself not to do something stupid as opposed to trusting the exchange not to do something stupid and lose your currency on your behalf. So, you know, it's just a difficult place to be a retail investor, I suppose. Yeah, that's a, you raise a good question. I, you know, when you're a complete beginner, I would agree with you that maybe it's a high learning curve. I've been trying to figure out this crypto world now for, I've had my hands dirty in it for about two very active years. So I've went through that painful phase of nothing quite working and like links leading to dead ends and all that stuff. But now I maybe hold a little bit of a difference of opinion with regard to say the difficulty of going into a hard wallet. I th the company I use, the uh, Ledger Nano, you know, like they, they, you know, you plug it in and the directions are written in a humane way, easy to understand way. And if you could read what the directions tell you, I thought the process was actually more simple and more accessible, certainly way, way more friend, user friendly than all the other Wild West crypto stuff. And I've now coached a good number of people to do exactly that. And no real issues. You just have to be careful, right? Like pay attention, follow the steps. And yeah, keep your password like in a place that's safe. But to me, that doesn't feel that much different than like, you know, where do you store your passport? Where do you, you know, you're not going to just, if you could, if you could hold on to your passport, <laughs> right, in some drawer or some safe or some place in your house, you could jolly well put in the words you wrote down to protect your crypto. And it doesn't feel that much different. Well, this could be fun, but like here's, uh, here's two things to think about then that maybe, I don't know, maybe you've addressed this already. So, uh, okay, I mean, you've got, if you have literally got your 24-word phrase written down somewhere in the house, right, that is a, there's a risk there. And criminals are becoming more sophisticated. So if they see something that looks like that, even if you've tried to encode it in some way, someone might figure out that that's what it is. And then it's, it's very simple, cost them 50 bucks to buy their own ledger basically seize your private keys using that passphrase and drain your accounts. If you haven't written it down and it's not straightforward, what are you going to do when you die? And how is someone going to inherit that cryptocurrency from you? Uh, a, wait, I thought you were asking me that. I thought I'm the one doing the three questions this week. <laughs> I came up with a kind What's of more, more? that I'm not going to discuss, but I did, I did come up with a way to fix, to solve this problem, yeah. which I can't discuss, but uh, I'll happily share okay. with you privately. 
All right. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay right before we give away uh too much information to the scammers uh, in, right, our, yeah. in our audience yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, before we come off this topic though like there is a i saw a really good article on the street just a few days ago um and uh, it was a chap just on the street has uh written a, a piece on the increase in scams as a result of this kind of ftx meltdown and there's some just some I won't go into too much detail because I know we're running a bit long on this episode, but there's some, you know, nasty stuff happening. And I think just as a warning to anyone who's listening, right, you know, protect your cryptocurrency. If someone calls purporting to be from Binance or Coindesk and they say, you know, they're trying to get you to give a certain information to secure your account, mm -hmm. it's probably a scam, right? You just need to have your bullshit detector on max uh, mode right now in particular, all the time, but especially right now. Because crypto scammers are going crazy. Again, probably haven't got time to do justice to the topic, but there's some, you know, some really nasty stuff called pig butchering, which is, as it seems to have sort of taken hold as a, uh, you know, a sort of centre of this stuff actually in Cambodia, where I was quite recently. Got whole teams, incredibly well-funded teams of folk um, who are basically executing uh, scams on, you know, innocent folk overseas with things like romance scams and. You know, you would be shocked. I've read some case studies. You'd be shocked at the the amount of time and effort uh, and resources that go into executing some of these scams. But when they pull them off, you know, they're taking people for literally t you know millions of dollars. One one poor lady I listened to an interview with lost six million dollars to one of these romance scams, um, and it kind of wiped her out uh, when she was in retirement. It's really not a pretty picture. There's actually another level of hell to this whole thing, unfortunately. I used to kind of bait these folk when they got in my Twitter DMs and, you know, lead them on a little bit just because I figure if I'm wasting their time, they're not pestering somebody else. And I was kind of thinking, oh, look how clever I am for doing this. Actually, the next level of hell I hadn't appreciated is, unfortunately, there are people from all across Southeast Asia being trafficked into Cambodia with the offer of like a job offer. And then they're basically in human slavery uh, and they're being forced to execute these scams. So unfortunately, you know, the poor person you're chatting to is probably in a much worse situation than you. But, uh, you know, number one, yeah. look after yourself. Wow, that's terrifying. Yeah. <clears throat> should, we, uh, should we give a quick plug to the street? So we do some work with the street uh, at Seven Investing. The street is a fantastic uh, resource for kind of financial news, financial education, but articles like that crypto scam one I just mentioned. We've got a fairly close link with the street ourselves, one of our ex lead advisors and still a very good friend of the seven investing family dan klein he's their managing editor um dan's got a, a great history with um many finance websites deep deep knowledge um and it's just a, it's a really good news source you know i said earlier twitter's my number one news source that's true but i go read a lot of stuff on the street too so i would recommend checking it out at thestreet.com if you're not familiar with it Fantastic. Yeah. And you'll, you'll be seeing more content from the seven advisors linked uh, to the street. So great way to get your finance education up to par. So what else should we tackle today, buddy? What's on our list? Uh, I'll quickly mention more of my reading journeys. Um, I'm getting close to finishing Chip War, which I, I, I still maintain. This is one of the most thrilling enjoyable reads in recent days just as a standalone forget investing but the things i've learned in here are kind of uh 
blowing my mind um and i'm not even at the good parts yet i'm not even at the you know in the contemporary modern era yet so highly highly recommend that and i just finished a work of fiction called when we cease to understand the world by benjamin laputut i believe is his name a truly stunning work of art and imagination it's quite short and it's uh, it takes real scientists including several quantum physicists i have a by the way i have a, a long-standing dalliance with with physics and quantum physics and it kind of fictionalizes their worlds during peak their peak uh call it um imaginative episodes where they were about to figure out some major discovery i'm not doing it justice because the book at its heart is really about how impossible it is to know the world that's what physics shows us on the quantum level anyway and some of the dangers of maybe assuming you know too much and you know like the arrogance of science and that the repercussions of of discovering say how the world works leads to things like chemical warfare and world war one and nuclear bombs and so it's a it's quite a mess but it's a beautiful beautiful book i couldn't recommend it more highly and it kind of fits in into the investing paradigm because quantum physics is about probabilities <laughs> rather than cause and effect and you know as poker players and investors we know the value of when you see the world probabilistically sure. and linearly I, I definitely feel like i've got uh schrodinger's portfolio at the moment where every time i open the box at like 9 30 a.m us time who knows whether it's going to be green or red my portfolio is both alive and dead at the same time <laughs> well, you're in better shape than my mine's uh pretty much dead <laughs> every every time i don't i'm pretty sure it's, <laughs> there is nothing alive in there um, any longer and by the way schrodinger was one of the main characters there's a chapter devoted to him i'd love to put it on my reading list but my reading list is so long and i i just spend so little time actually reading i spend all my time like glued well if i'm trying to keep my head out of TikTok, but glued to actual news sources um like the world there's so much shit happening in the world right now i don't find the bandwidth to uh you know read for pleasure or, or even for education right you're one of these millennial whippersnappers huh you have no time for books no more luke huh you <laughs> just you and your thumbs how big are your thumbs are they are, are they gorilla size yet do you want to hear something <laughs> extremely dumb this was about um, two months ago when i was with my buddy tom and someone gave me a business card and i was kind of i'll admit i was pretty drunk at the time and i, I was i was squinting to read the business card and i tried to like pinch to squat to scroll it <laughs> zoom in like what am i doing <laughs> That's such a great that's such a great point though can you really imagine what it's like you know if, if you're say two or three years old and all your life you've had your parents gave you the d devices i mean you're the, the way you yeah. understand the world talk about when we cease to understand the world is so cognitively different from you know our generation but anyhow yeah. um yeah. it seems like you're a lost cause so uh, <laughs> <clears throat> you ready for three questions uh, oh wow, gosh, yeah. Three conversations game. It's uh, your turn to ask me. Let's just uh, quickly R remind anyone who hasn't listened to a prior episode. So uh, we usually wrap up each episode with three conversations game. This week, Christoph is going to pitch three conversations that I have nothing, no idea about what he's going to ask me. I'm going to get to 
uh, cancel one of them that I really don't want to talk about, and then he's going to pick one of the remaining two, and I have to give him a minute of well-reasoned uh, discussion on the, the, the chosen topic. All right, excellent. So, Luke, first one is uh, is kind of a softball question. I like it. Your life, uh, your life depends on making the correct investment in sort of absolute dollar terms. Okay. And we're talking about uh, the investment period starts today and ends five years from today. And you have to bet your life on either Elon and Twitter <laughs> or Zuckerberg and Facebook. Aye. Right. Which of those will bring in quantitatively a better return on in, on capital? Right. Okay. Question two. What's harder, laying down a great poker hand with a huge pot when you see a nasty river card show up or selling a stock with tremendous tech potential but that's down like 97% and is in that worry bucket? Mm. Okay. Yeah. What's harder? Yeah. And the third question, who will win the World Cup and why will that team be Poland? <laughs> uh, I've, okay, I've got to put a, a line through the World Cup just because literally I have no idea about football. I'm a fan of Poland. Uh, I've been to uh, Krakow, Krakow many times uh, and I, I wish you all, of their, all the luck in the World Cup. But I have no vested interest in uh, in the outcome, particularly uh, based on where it's at. But that I didn't like previous World Cups either. Okay, wow, that really surprises me. If, if uh, you know, learn something new every day. But you seem like made for for uh, football. Okay, um, I, was, uh, I was too focused on chatting chatting up the goals when I was a youth. I, I let my I, I let my competitors uh -huh. watch the football matches. Yeah, okay. Ah, oh, so okay. I see. That's a smart playbook. No wonder you're, you're okay. I see what you've done there. Uh, tell me, yeah. Uh, tell me about what's harder: laying down the the poker hand or or selling that investment that just won't leave you alone. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and I. Okay. I think I when I was at my poker prime, I think one of the strongest parts of my game was the ability to make a big fold, which I guess is what you're describing there. You know, you've a huge amount of money in the middle. Maybe it's not it's not a huge amount more, but you sense that your opponent's stronger and they're trying to just sort of squeeze that last bit of cash out of you. It's kind of folding in those situations. I've actually folded Kings pre-flop uh, correctly once in Las Vegas uh, to create mm. a claim. And uh, from the crowd, mm. I won my buddy I was with just shrugged his shoulders and called me an idiot even though I was correct on that occasion <laughs> um, so I used to make great folds I will say I now my game is terrible now because I play with a bit too much alcohol in me and I've lost the ability to make those great folds mm -hmm. uh, I just want to see mm -hmm. my curiosity gets, gets better at me uh, so that's a that's a massive part of my game I need to tighten up so that is but that is hard and I'm finding that very hard now um, but I will say selling a beaten down stock is potentially harder um and i'll reference back to that conversation we had earlier about no regrets like i know i i talked a big game there and said oh you know no regrets decision i've just sold fiverr and i'm not going to look at fiverr but if fiverr does do 100x like 20 people are going to come and tell me right so there's no getting away from that information <laughs> and i am going to feel like a donkey because I, <laughs> I lost like a ton of cash on well not a fair bit of cash on Fiverr uh, and 
if I could have ridden that back up to, you know, glory days, then fantastic. And I'll try and remind myself of my rationale for selling, which was well thought out. But I think in the long run, if a company I sold succeeds, that will prove to be the harder thing to, can, to keep in my cool and my calm. Uh, when I know I've then, even though I made what I thought was the right decision, it's turned around and bitten me. And I suppose another aspect of all of those two things is, mm-hmm. like if you're making that fold in poker, like the only thing you can lose is the money on the table. It's no longer your money anyway, it's mm-hmm. now the pot's money. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, you've artfully chosen those two things because it's very, very similar. But if you, you know, sell that beaten down stock, um, the amount of money you could lose, inverted commas, is theoretically infinite if that company does like a thousand X. So, you know, the potential, the potential loss on paper is much greater in the, with the stock than with the poker hand. Wow, what an answer. I'll, I'll push back just in one way because mm. there's, there's the step beyond laying down a great hand uh, in, with, a, with a huge pot. And that's when you lay it down only to see that your opponent was bluffing you. That, because that takes away your dignity. <laughs> you're left with nothing at that point. You're, you're left. You have no money. You have, you, oh my God, the pain. I just, I think I, maybe I'd rather lose 5,000% in a stock and then have that, that kind of we uh, poker table. Yeah. If, if I, not really an anecdote but a bit of sort of insider kind of if you play a lot of poker then uh you might introduce something called the seven deuce game are you familiar with that um so if you're playing regular if you're playing regular sort of texas hold'em which is the most popular game like i play well, me and my buddies play all sorts of different games but in regular texas hold'em like the objectively the very worst hand you could have is a seven and a two of different suits so anyway, we play the seven deuce game, which I know a lot of high stakes folk do as well. We're not high stakes players, but we do this too. Uh, if you raise with the worst hand, if you raise with seven deuce and you subsequently win the pot, however you win it by bluffing or just by getting there, you know, flopping quad sevens, who knows? If you've raised pre-flop with the worst hand and you win, everybody around the table has to give you some money. Like we, I think we did it for like five, five okay. bucks or 10 bucks. So because of that, uh, there were one or two characters in our game who would go mental with seven deuce just because they wanted the glory of showing the bluff when they won a big pot. They would, they, that was a fantastic addition to the game for players like myself who probably didn't quite have the cojones to make the big play with the seven deuce. We would make significant equity from this crazy plays that would result as a consequence of people going wild with that bad hand. And you see, folks, this is why No Limit with Luke and Kristoff is now your favorite podcast. <laughs> Are you the seven deuce in this, Kristoff? <laughs> You're a pair of aces, my friend. You're a pair of aces. <laughs> All right. I think that, uh, yeah, that, that wraps us up, right? For another two weeks, yep. Today was uh, Monday the 21st of November. I guess this is going out just at the start of December. Okay, right on. Luke, always a pleasure. Can't wait to uh, see you soon for uh, and hear your next pitch for Seven Seven Investing. Plus you too. Uh, I'm pitching mine in about two hours time, and I know you love this company. I've got an interesting take on it. Oh, can't wait! <laughs> Thanks, everybody. See you in a fortnight. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. 
Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.